Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for everybody celebrating Christmas. I'm Rachel <laughs> Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. And I'm Rosie Candethal, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And I'm Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. Yes, you heard that right. You have all three of us here because this is a party episode. Yeah! You might even say yeah. it's a Christmas party episode. <laughs> Yay, because ding, ding, this ding. week we're dealing with the, the lectionary text for Christmas, which is really exciting. And uh, there's a couple big things happening right now. One is that we are going to be adventurous and talk about the New Testament reading in the lectionary. How's that for the Old Testament lectionary podcast? I love it. The other big news is that this is First Reading's 200th episode. Ah, whoop, so whoop, whoop. congratulations, you two. Yeah, <laughs> Yay. awesome. Yes, this has been such uh, an amazing adventure going back more than three years now to oh the humble beginnings of First Reading <laughs> and now in our 200th episode glory. That's Here so we are. crazy to think about. It's wild. Three years. Yes. But we, we have uh, not reached our peak until we had Rosie Candethel with us. That's true. So. It was all, all uphill <laughs> grind, and then all of a sudden, the light shined in the darkness. Oh, my ooh, goodness. Ooh, all that, the sounds like a, that sounds like a transition. <laughs> Let's go. Well, this is, this is a party episode, which means uh, we're just shooting the breeze about the lectionary reading. And uh, what is it? This this year is it Luke two Luke one two through something one, or other one through twenty looks one like, through yeah. twenty what it is mm -hmm. every year Tim this is the yeah. only thing that Christians should be reading on Christmas Eve <laughs> <laughs> all right then all right then so uh, hey what do we want to talk about what would be helpful for preachers and other lovers of the Bible who are thinking about uh, looking into this text and maybe uh, maybe from our angle a little bit of uh, Hebrew Bible resonance going on in this uh, famous Luke text. Well, I'll jump in. Um, if we're going to look at maybe some Hebrew Bible allusions here that are in Luke chapter two that might be helpful for preachers and anyone who's interested to kind of think about, like in these very first verses, it's helpful to just listen to this language. So in those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. Hmm. And this was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. So the first thing that kind of strikes me, which is also a Hebrew Bible illusion, is this structure of the empire that's um, sort of sovereign over the space. And so these first few verses really set up um, the power structure, the earthly power structure, at least, that yeah. we're looking at. Uh, mm. And does this, like, so there's this decree, right? So in, in uh, the Greek, it's the, the dogma that goes out, uh, the law that's there. And then Emperor Augustus, right? So uh, Caesar Augustus, mm. the, the great, uh, mm. all the world should be registered. Yeah, and all the world, that. meaning here, is Rome's idea of what all the world looks like, the civilized mm. world that they have dominated. Yeah. Uh, and they're bringing in these folks for registration. Registration for the empire is about taxation, militarization. It's about mm -hmm. keeping track of who your citizens are and ordering them into place. And so what we're seeing here with the kind of first story of the Holy Family is them responding to the law, coming to, um, you know, everybody kind of moving into place because of what this law has ordered. 
So what's the what's the resonance that you're hearing there, Rosie? That that makes you that draws your attention to that that setting. Right. So you all know that I'm working on Esther in my dissertation, right? And so Esther does a very similar thing in that it sets up this kind of like structure, over, overarching structure of empire. And then it starts talking about this smaller plot um, that is actually a revelation of how God is working. And so what I see in Luke 2 is a very similar structure where, you know, we have a description of history and empire and what others might recognize. And then the kind of hidden truth that's underneath. And we begin the story of this pregnant woman and her her betrothed, not even her husband, uh, moving into Bethlehem. And then you get the kind of the hints of city of David, a son of David. Mm-hmm. And then you're sort of hearing this, oh, yes, right, the former king of Israel. So you're hearing the resonances of another story that's running in parallel. And Esther does a very similar thing. And I think you were also talking about um, resonances of registration with um, mm-hmm. with David. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, something that kind of struck me was the, and I'm trying to remember exactly where this is. This is in Chronicles somewhere, right? The maybe also in Second Kings. There's a parallel story of mm-hmm. uh, David at the end of his story. He also takes a census uh, of the people of Israel, and um, it's it's bad news, right? It's, uh, it's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's the wrong decision, and it results in uh, divine judgment and plague and just terrible things happening. So there's this already sort of expectation within the tradition, traditional scriptures of the people of Israel that um, censuses by those in power for the purposes of taxation and militarization are, um, they're a bad thing. It's sort of a fraught context, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, and and one of the interesting things that I've often found with my students is they're always like, well, why was it such a bad thing? You know, what what's going on in Second Chronicles there? Why was it such a terrible thing? The text isn't really clear. It's, it's one of those times where we kind of have to try to divine what's going on in the divine mind, if you will. Mm. But I think what, what Rosie and, you know, Tim, what you're lifting up by connecting these two is the issue of control that's happening here is there's a there is a definite move of empire to control all the world you know i mean i just i've always loved that that the entire world should be registered and mm. i i think there's a a danger that this sets up right away because what empire is trying to do is to literally control the narrative and what the rest of luke sets out to do is to um, almost offer a different narrative uh, we can even see that in the in the Greek here, because in these first three verses, the word registered, apographesthai, um, apographe, and apographesthai again, they occurs th- they occur three times, and you can hear that mm. graphe, you can hear that you know to write in the the mm-hmm, middle of that because mm-hmm. it's literally their name is written down. If you go back to the very beginning of Luke one verse three, when Luke self discloses the entire purpose of this gospel, it's that. I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write right down, an orderly yeah. account mm. for you, most excellent Theophilus. So, so there's this this juxtaposition leading back to the empire and you know of David that tried to take a census and control, and this two different purposes of writing, one for mm. control, one for truth. And so I think there's a there's an interesting play going on there. It's yeah, like, it also strikes me just in talking about it with you guys now, this story is is not set up as just sort of a subplot for a small people 
in some no. corner of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we're already being set up to see this as a, a story that's going to, even though it centers in on one family and their adventure, it has implications for the whole world. That This yeah. is being set up as a global story. It sort of reminds me, with my Hebrew Bible hat on, of the way that um, Genesis 12 is mm-hmm. the story of mm-hmm. one little family, Abram mm-hmm. and Sarai. Yeah. And their family, but the context for it is Genesis 11, which is you know Tower of Babel and sort of this yeah. this worldwide picture of things going on on the global stage as they would have understood it. And then this yeah. one little story with this one family is set in that context that it's going to have implications for everyone. Oh, that's fantastic! Especially because in Genesis 12 verse 4, you get and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you've got the context of Babel, the context of empire here, the focus on one family, the focus on one family, and yet the implication that that, that intense attention to that singular family is ultimately going to bring out bring about blessing for the entire world. There's a nice parallel there, Tim. Mm-hmm. And I think, Rosa, you're helping to also bring out that there's this is set up in a kind of confrontation with mm-hmm. the power and control of empire, yeah. that there is an... an there's another power at work here, mm-hmm. a divine power. Right. And we, we could talk about that language too, right? So, I mean, we're moving from, um, so this empire and then this focus on this, uh, the singular family, the holy family, and then these messengers, right? So the uh, angelos, the, the, the angels as they're yeah. um, translated, but it might be helpful to just also be thinking about how the Greek word is actually, you know, the messages of the empire. Those are the agelos, the the ones yeah. who carry the messages of the king, right? So even in the even what we're talking about here is it's the language is also moving to the the real message is coming from a, a real king overall, you yeah. know, and, and this is the message. But to who is so fat, right? So we we open up onto the story of the shepherds in a field at night watching over their animals, right? So shepherds should probably, for us as Hebrew Bible folks, like there should be some bulbs going off there ding, too. Ding, ding, right. <laughs> we we have David the shepherd, Jacob the shepherd, God the shepherd so much Moses. in the Psalms. Moses, Moses the shepherd right? in Exodus three. Yeah. 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 Right. So we're hearing this resonance there of, you know, of these just kind of working class blue collar people who are being called to some sort of mission. Um, and that's where these shepherds are. And that's who these messengers of the king are going to, not to the palace, not mm-hmm. to the temple, but to this field at night. I think that's a really important point because I think I've heard and probably given a number of sermons that have really um, leaned into like these were the, or or maybe overemphasized even, these were the outcasts of society. These were people that nobody wanted to be around. These were on the fringes of society. And it's like, well, shepherd in the Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near Eastern context had really big royal overtones. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was not just Moses. It was not just Jacob. It was not just David. It was these ancient Near Eastern kings who would self-identify as shepherds of their people. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's, you know, there's maybe almost some irony going on here that, no, literally <laughs> these are actual shepherds, shepherds. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like a play going on on this theme. Yeah, I, I found as I was looking into this, um, Ezekiel 34 is a really interesting prophetic yeah, chapter nice. about um, 
it's a, a kind of prophetic condemnation of the shepherds of the people yeah. right. and how they've been leading God's flock astray. But the the prophecy there is that uh, God will bring a, a descendant of David to be the true shepherd of God's people. Mm. And so maybe there's something, maybe Luke's doing something with this idea of the heritage of of David being a shepherd and yeah. of the sort of prophetic resonances that were in the air about the need for a shepherd for God's people. And so the the angelos goes to shepherds. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of play going on here. I mean, you, we could just take, you know, angelos I, and angels. Let's talk a little bit about angels in the Hebrew Bible, right? Like what what are the instances you can think of just off the top of your head? Yeah, angels uh, and sort of terrifying angelic appearances. Uh, Genesis 16, uh, Hagar encounters yeah. the, the messenger of God in the wilderness. And it's, uh, you know, she says, whoa, I've seen God and lived. Yeah, Yikes. right, 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 right. The angels coming to Abraham and Sarah and announcing Isaac's birth and that very strange appearance there, you know, where they're, you know, where Sarah's laughing. I mean, they are, they're strange characters and they yeah. often strike terror. So, I mean, yeah. the idea of these Christmas plays where the angels are these sort of sweet, um, yeah. you know, d- dressed in white. I mean, I can't imagine what these angels look like because in the Greek, the the language of their fear is really... It's like they're they feared with great fear. Um, it, it's it's you know it's they're trembling, terrified. So yeah, I, I don't in the know Hebrew Bible, just... often the response to an encounter with the angel of God, the messenger of God, is falling on one's face in terror. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. No, I think right. that's and that's a great point to to lift up the Greek there, Rosie, because there's a verb. And then there's a fear, and then there's an or there's a noun, and then there's an adjective. So they feared fear greatly is basically yeah. what it's right. Says there. Like underscoring this is right. not like comfortable. Yeah. This is terrifying, and they're yeah. on they're probably yeah. on their faces like 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 Tim is right. describing. But the first word is don't be afraid. Yeah, that which um, implies that that would be necessary to say. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, and that's you know we also get that. Um, if you're thinking again of nativity plays or Christmas plays, it's often like one angel who shows up to give <laughs> the great news or maybe a couple of angels. Um, but this is, um, there's one here. And then in verse 13, suddenly there was with an angel, a multitude of the heavenly host. And that word host I've grown up with in my mind is like a pretty word, like a, like a choir sort of like it's, <laughs> it's a bunch of people getting together. It's a nice word. And, and in both Greek and in Hebrew, <laughs> What does that word actually mean, friends? Armies. <laughs> yeah, Soldiers. An army. Yes. This is an, <laughs> yes. this is an army. This is, mm-hmm. These are equipped for war. Mm-hmm. And yet, ironically, what they what this army is proclaiming is peace. I mean, there's just there's just great, deep, joyful play going on here between the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Greek, the Hebrew, mm-hmm. you know, expectations. What is a host supposed to bring with it? A host is supposed to bring war. And this one brings with it a proclamation of peace. So it's all that (laughs) empire turned upside down stuff going on. Yeah. We're back to the theme of empire again, because even though the, the, on the ground, you've got Caesar and this forced, um, forced uh, migration to hometowns for registration. Uh, and, and yet, and the, if you just were to peel back the curtain a little bit, like Mm. we get in this, this, uh, theophany here, is all of a sudden there's there's another power, another empire, another force, an army at yeah. work. 
the curtain is sort of peeled back for a minute. I mean, I do think, you know, we don't often talk about this as an apocalyptic text, and I wouldn't call it an apocalyptic text, but it is playing with some of those apocalyptic resonances where in, you know, apocalyptic texts, you sort of peel back the curtain yeah. to see what's really real. Oh. Only you could see what's yeah. really going on here. Exactly. Yeah. So so I think Luke is sort of playing with that as well. I think what I love too is that despite all of the like evidence of control in this world, there's this unruly birth, you know, of a of a woman who's <laughs> not properly married. Um, yeah. and it, you know, there's Luke is playing with this idea that there had always been rumors around Jesus's illegitimacy or whether or not his line could be, you know, actually driven back to David or even Joseph. And here we have that sort of playing here where they're not married and the text is clear. She's pregnant. So yeah. even today that might be, you know, you know, an issue for someone to think about. But here it is in the center of the story is this birth that cannot be yeah. controlled. It cannot be. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it can't be mm -hmm. defined by law, you know, not in the ways that we might expect. Hold on, hold on. Let me just repeat yeah, yeah. that again. The center of the story, at the center of this story is a birth that cannot be controlled. Like that's, uh, and man, I like that. preachers, just take that. Like, an unruly quote, birth. A fill there. <laughs> yeah, an unruly birth. That's fantastic. And to, and to heap, heap onto that would be the observation that uh, as the story says, first of all, as in sort of a passing comment, that there was no room in the living quarters or the inn mm -hmm. or whatever, and so the the birth had to happen uh, out, you know, in the stable in the manger. Yeah. I wonder, you know, given that 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 this was a hospitality culture, it just it always surprises me that when the very pregnant Mary shows up to probably a relative's home where there's lots of people gathered, that they didn't just like make space for her in the living quarters mm. and, you know, send, you know, the teenagers to go sleep in the stable. And I wonder if there's something about the the scandal and stigma of her showing up as an unmarried pregnant woman mm. that led to her having to take up residence in the in the stable area. Yeah, and then for, you know, I mean, the resonance throughout the Hebrew Bible of these kinds of births that are, you know, secondary, like Hagar's is, you know, we sort of mentioned that too, yeah. that that birth that um, is uncomfortable and uh, can't be hosted in the main quarters, but kind of has to go to the margins. But here we are, uh, like focused on this child in the manger, you know, among the animals. There's all these beautiful hymns that kind of think yeah. about, Christ among these humble barn animals, that they would be the first witnesses of this birth, that creation yeah. in some way is there oh. first before humanity can even recognize who this child might oh, be. Oh, I love that. Especially, you know, in Advent, we had the Isaiah text. What was the Isaiah, Isaiah something where it's, they shall not hurt or harm on all my holy mountain. And it's all of these animals mm -hmm. that again are, are in relationship with a child um, and you know, I think I said this in a previous episode, but the adults are like off making war and God's like, you go do that on my holy mountain though. That's not going to be mm -hmm. happening here. So it's almost like the manger is like a miniature holy mountain at the moment of Jesus's oh, that's birth. That's interesting. I think that might be Isaiah 10 ish. I'll <laughs> look it up. 11. Nicely done. <clears throat> 11 is 10 ish. Oh yeah, no, you know what? It's, it actually occurs twice. Interesting. It's, so it occurs in Isaiah 11 verse nine and Isaiah 65 verse 25. You know, the other, the other thing that, that caught my attention about the manger 
is how when it first comes through the story, it's just um, it's just mentioned like in passing, like it's just a little minor detail of the story that doesn't deserve explanation or extra comment. And and if you're going quickly, it just kind of goes past yeah. and you might think, what was that? But then the story keeps going, and when the the hosts are there uh, giving praise to to God for this amazing birth, they the angel says to the shepherds, uh, "This will be a sign for you. You'll ah. find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger." Hmm. And all of a sudden, this little passing comment becomes a prophetic sign. sign. Huh. And I always sort of just thought that that was like, "Here's how you'll know which is the right baby." But, you know, signs are, mm -hmm. they have meaning to them. They have significance yeah. to them. So there's some, it's more than just like uh, the name tag for how to find this particular <laughs> baby. Right. There's something meaningful in that the Savior who's to be born, is, you'll find huh. him lying in a manger. Just huh. raises again the power of the juxtaposition between the power of empire and the marginality of this savior who has come that's beautiful you know what else it it lifts up is i wonder if there's again a literary juxtaposition of where at the end of jesus's life he's taken down from the cross he's wrapped in cloths and he's laid in a tomb and if that's part of what the sign resonance is is carrying here because i think you're right tim i i had always thought of it as like a stop here like a name tag like you said mm -hmm. but if you if we really take that word seriously semeon in greek carries a lot of weight to it I wonder if there's a foreshadowing happen, happening here as well, uh, mm. that, yeah, this is no ordinary child, and the life will be no ordinary life either. Yeah, that sounds very Lucan. Luke, yeah. Luke peppers in all sorts of sort of like, ah, if you read this carefully, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's something That's deep right. going on here. Mm -hmm. And often it has to do with voices that pop up from the margins. Nice. Uh, Luke, Luke really tends to highlight those. We are we're ramping up into the end of our time here. Other other thoughts or uh, I I didn't really come up with any specific preaching angles. But if you if you have some sort of parting thoughts of of what preachers might take from this, I mean I'm in I'm in Georgia right now. We just kind of had this crazy runoff election. We were waiting in lines to yeah. vote and. There was a lot of resonance for me as I was thinking about the lines for registration and, you know, what mm. we might think is the most important election, huh. you know, over here and then possibly an, another reality. I don't know. Like, and that kind of helped restore the mystery of we don't ever really know. And I think all of us struggle with control. So for me, mm. this this unruly birth at the center reminds me of, you know, I, I might be trying to do all these things in this season um, but I need a reminder of the fact that, you, you know, we treasure um, the the unpredictable in the Christian life, um, the, the, the not predictable, like you really cannot see this coming. It just is the surprise. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, at least, it's just reminding me that that is one of the essences of Advent is we wait for something we really don't know. Um, and but we hope, you know, and so I don't know, that's kind of, you know, where I, where I was in terms of landing on some sort of preaching point here in Georgia, where I am. Yeah. Nice. How about you, Tim? I don't know. I've, in our conversation here, I've been struck by, um, the sort of apocalyptic, um, flavor of this chapter. Like there, there aren't very many of these sort of like sky peels back and there's a yeah. heavenly <laughs> army like that, that, 
doesn't feel like a particularly New Testament yeah. uh, narrative vibe. So there is something going on here of a sneak peek behind the scenes yeah. that I think is, to me, that's poignant about the Christmas celebration that uh, here we we take a moment in the annual you know cycle of chaos that we live through <laughs> to pause and to just reflect on um, something that's happening uh, behind the scenes, behind what is seen. And just like in Luke, you know, after this, that that um, you know layer that's been pulled back pulled back gets replaced, yeah. <laughs> and the story continues on this really sort of small scale. Yeah. Uh, of of following this one family through and uh yeah i just i i think that maybe there's some potential there for helping congregations to pause and reflect that there's more going on than the uh day-to-day chaos of life mm-hmm. in this weird world would let on yeah so it really kind of to, to sit for a bit with that good news of great joy for all people like really mm-hmm. sitting there of of not only the the here in our time good news of great joy for all people, but in the heavenly realm, in the future realm, you know, that's there's a there's a yeah, resonance to this story that that echoes in ways we don't even really understand. And pausing on that could be a really beautiful moment on Christmas. And um, you know, from the Old Testament lectionary podcast, it's worth just sort of closing out by reminding folks that uh, all of these themes that we've been talking about, these these deep meanings that are embedded in Luke two, are not just isolated to Luke two. They're a part of the yeah. in, the biblical witness as a whole. Yeah. And so, as much as as you can, uh, liturgists and preachers draw in these Hebrew Bible texts into yeah. your celebration of Christmas because they're all they're all a part of that uh, larger resonance of what God's doing. They are. And maybe I could end us on an Old Testament note just very briefly. If you must. If I must. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll allow it. So the name the name of uh, Jesus's, what would it be, cousin, uncle, whatever it is, is Zechariah. And of course, there's an Old Testament book called Zechariah. And one of my favorite things to notice is the resonances between the book of Luke, especially the first two chapters, and the book of Zechariah. And one of my very favorites is Zechariah 14, verses 20 to 21. And what this these two verses do is they describe holiness so pervasive that it resides in the very most basic, most unexpected places of life. The, the holiness of God in this apocalyptic world extends out from the temple and infects everything around it with holiness. So these two mm. verses say, On that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, the horses themselves, (laughs) uh, which were also war machines, right? So if we're talking about war and and that sort of thing. And then it goes on, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be as holy as the bowls in front of the altar. So cooking pots Mm. in the house of the Lord. But then it goes even farther. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and use them to boil the flesh of the sacrifice. The regular, ordinary cooking bowls of Jerusalem shall give and carry holiness. And in this text, the regular, ordinary body of a mother carries and gives holiness. And that holiness in the form of a regular, ordinary person carries and gives holiness to everyone around him as he walks through his life. 
So I would just highlight what you said, Tim, like draw on those Old Testament resonances to bring to life this text that we've heard so many times. That's beautiful, Rachel. And I'm going to forget all of that except for <laughs> the 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 jingle bells on the horses. That, that I think is I the didn't point that, that. <laughs> that I'll take with me for this season. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> Okay, friends. Well, I think we should wrap up this party episode, this party 200th episode of the First Reading Podcast. Thank you both for this uh, really fascinating conversation into a New Testament text. Uh, gee, we should do this more often. That was fun. We <laughs> awesome. Okay, friends. Well, uh, thank you all for listening, and especially to those of you out there who have been listening for you know 200 episodes oh, worth. Of this. Thanks, mom. <laughs> yeah, thanks, mom. <laughs> you know, if you have not gotten a Christmas gift for anybody yet, might I recommend sharing the link to our podcast, perhaps sharing a mug of first reading? There's even a t shirt. So, you know, if you're looking for last minute gifts, firstreadingpodcast.com merchandise is the way to go. We've got you covered. Well, thank you, all of you out there, for being a part of this podcast community. We look forward to being with you next time when we get back to the Hebrew Bible proper. And until then, I'm Tim McNinch. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Rosie Candethel. Merry Christmas, everyone. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> Wait, that's my line. Uh, terrible. <laughs> Tim, a yes, tiny, tiny Tim. Tim. <laughs> terrible. Say it, say, it. say it. God bless us, everyone. Yes, even with the voice. That was amazing. Oh, no.